All right, so first question, what is joy? Go. Happiness. happiness. Is it identical to happiness? If so, why do we have multiple words? So joy is like happiness, but it's deeper, or at least it, there's something about it that has more depth, more substance. Okay, so, but now we're, now we're adding qualifiers. Joy is multi-layered. You're saying happiness can be more fleeting, but joy is not as circumstantial. You're imagining it, and you're saying there's an element of authenticity, freedom, no posturing. You're not trying to be... There's a... Yeah. So I'm almost... Like you, these aren't... This is not your words, but see if this works with what you're saying. It almost sounds to me like joy is your pure natural state when you are in contact communion with God so we can we can take joy in all kinds of things and if we have a contented place in life uh, a posture of enjoyment gratitude that kind of a thing um, that's associated with the joy region oh should I give you my answer too yes. super happy that's all it is. Yeah, that's all it is. There's two words for happiness in your Bible, really. One's blessed, and the other one's joy. Blessed means happy, and then for, for super freaking happy, joy. That's all it is. And it's, neither of them are spiritual words, either. They're secular words, and sec well, we'll get to that. Number two, what are some examples of pure joy? Your wedding day. The end of school, summer break, baby. Yes, I had to say, I agree with that. Joy, man, that's a form of joy. Cattle released from the stall, man. To some people, it's getting out of church, man, getting out. <laughs> when someone makes you laugh so hard you cry, that's like pure joy. Yes. That belly hurt laughter. Yes, when you laugh so hard you cry. You know when I did the, did the cat video that had the bleeped out the bad words in here the one day? I, I, was so, I was so horrified. Hopefully some of y'all didn't even notice. I was so horrified. I, I died inside three times during that service. And when I told that story, horrified to my cousins, my cousin Jeremy laughed so hard he cried for like three days. And, and Darren Peachy told me again about that story because he was with my cousin. And so that was, what, years ago? A year and a half? It was a while back. I said, June, turn off the video. And he tried to turn it off and restarted it, played it again. I was like, oh, no. That brought Jeremy joy. When I think of joy, I think of me and Gabe. I have this little video clip from way back in the day. Me and Gabe are sitting at the, at the dining room table. And I would yell, bada. That's it, just bada. Bada. And he would yell, bada, at the top of his lungs. And we would both be yelling, ah, looking at each other's eyes until we both broke down laughing. And there's something about that, that eye contact and that like irrational playing whatever, that that is what I think of instantly when I think pure joy is, is that kind of stuff. Number three, how is joy a byproduct of living in the spirit, and living, of living by the spirit? And then I just referenced our verse for this whole class, which is, and the, uh, the fruit or the outcomes the byproducts of living by the Spirit are love, joy, peace, etc. So again, 
It's not, we're, we're not here with a list of rules. Joy. No, if we, if we are living by the Spirit, one of the outcomes will be joy. So how? How does that work? How is joy a byproduct of living by the Spirit? So I'm hearing you say, fear as a motivator is a joy, is a joy thief. Fear is a joy thief. Love, it creates a seedbed for joy to grow. Okay, that's helpful. That's pretty helpful. So if I live riddled with fear, am I going to be a joyful person? That's interesting. It's fascinating. What else? How else is living by the Spirit putting us in a state where joy is the natural result? Sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes with the morning. So, so the idea there is, as we continue to place our hope in the Lord, even in hard circumstances, we have the promise that he'll reconstruct our emotional state back to joy, which is our natural state when, when you're with him. Right, so we were the joy set before him, and he's the joy set before us. Is that what I hear you saying, Stan? Interesting. This is the, this is the real question, isn't it? How is joy the byproduct because the focus isn't supposed to be on how do I get joy. But as the focus is living, living in union with Jesus, living in his love, living by the Spirit, joy is going to be one of the things produced. All right, next, uh, I think it's a question again. Who wants to get me Nehemiah chapter 8, 9, and 10? I heard God's word and understood them. So I know we just read it, but I'm going to summarize it. When they were hearing the Bible read to them by the people who could read, because in the ancient world almost nobody could read. So when they were hearing the Bible read to them, and they understood just how much they were not obeying God, and how much they had not done that they should have done, and how much they did that they should, shouldn't have done, they began to weep. And they are told... Don't do it. And they're told, don't do it because today is a sacred day. Or maybe the way we would understand it a little easier, a holy day. Or maybe if we could squeeze it a little more into what we call it nowadays, a holiday. And don't do it because if you start to only relate to God on the basis of what you've done wrong and feeling terrible about it, you have no strength to serve him. All you'll have is sadness. If all your relationship with God is, is how you failed him. Did they fail him? Yeah, they did. Yeah, and they, they knew they did. The, the word, the law, revealed it. Exposed it. And they're told, now don't, now, now don't waste a lot of time. Hush, just hush now. The fact that you're sad means it's going to change. The fact that you're sad means you care. means your heart's in a good place. Now, don't hold on that. Now, here's what I want you to do. Celebrate that you're God's covenant people. Celebrate that there's grace for you. Celebrate that there's forgiveness. Throw a party. Eat good, sweet. Like, like it's really, a, like, it's very physical, affirming. Like, dance. Eat good food. Drink good drink. Let's party. God is our God and God is good. 
I'm just fascinated by this. Because you know there's a time and a place to rend your hearts and your garments and put dust on your head and get on the ground and repent. There's a time and a place for that. But Nehemiah is going, this is not a time and a place for that. In fact, if you do that now, it will hijack your ability to fulfill your calling. Yeah, it really struck, struck me today. Like, really intriguing. Like, actually surprising. It, was surpri- it felt surprising today. That today's sacred, so it's inappropriate for you to be all sad. That the association that God has with what's sacred. Sacred means we should celebrate. And I thought, okay, all right, that's interesting. You remember Monty Python on the quest for the Holy Grail? The priests, are, the, the, the monks, they're, they're all... I don't know what they're saying in Latin. And then they whack themselves in the head with a board. And then they take a few more steps singing some psalm. And then they whack themselves in the head with a board again. Right? And it's so depressing. And, and like, who wants that? Who wants... Like, not only do they not, are they not having fun, no one wants to join them. And God's probably not happy either. Right? He's probably like, oh, man, you guys are the worst. What a buzzkill. <laughs> okay, so if the joy of the Lord is your strength, which that's already deep enough to go and spend a, spend a week with that concept, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. But if the joy of the Lord is your strength, one thing I like to do is flip it and see if the opposite holds true. How would you flip this phrase, the joy, if the joy of the Lord is your strength, then what is your weakness? The, the something of the who is your weakness. If the joy of the Lord is your strength, then maybe you could say the anxiety of, hum, of, of man is your weakness. Or you could say uh, the despair, uh, the, you know, a demonic despair is your weakness. Or, or a, a perpetual discouragement is your greatest weakness. There's a mindset that brings me to strength in God, and there's a mindset that will take away my strength to obey the Lord and to run well. And it's really helpful to know, okay, I'm entering into a mindset that's not going to serve me well. When we were going through this more recent season of trial, we had a trial. We were going through a trial. We're on the other side of it now, and I'm really glad. When we were going through that trial, one of the things I sent y'all, if you remember, was, is the way I'm thinking useful? Are these thoughts useful? And if they're not, say, Holy Spirit, what would be some useful thoughts? Right? If the joy of the Lord is our strength then is the, if the way I'm thinking is putting me out of the joy of the Lord, it's not useful. Even if it's facts and truth, so-called, to, so, so-called, because so facts and truth ain't the same, right? Facts are just pieces of data. Truth is Jesus' voice. Different things. Different things, right? The devil uses facts to deceive. Jesus has made-up stories that he uses to convey the kingdom, right? So his fictions are true, and the devil's facts are false. Right, so is this useful? So the joy of the Lord is your strength. There are mindsets that foster the joy of the Lord. Those are useful, and we're, we should cultivate them on purpose. There are, mind, there are mindsets, patterns of, that will turn us into the opposite, and we should go, okay, this isn't useful. And, yeah, because the accuser, when, is he, when he comes to Jesus in the wilderness, which is an opportune moment because Jesus is really physically and emotionally like, because he's been fasting 40 days. So it's an opportune moment. Satan comes and he uses the Bible to try to lead him astray. And it's like, oh. Five, question five. Does the phrase, the joy of the Lord, right? Because Nehemiah just said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Does the phrase, the joy of the Lord mean, A, that it's the Lord's joy? I'm asking a grammatical question here. Of the Lord. Is, is, 
the Lord's joy is your strength, does it mean A, that it's the Lord's joy, the Lord's own joy? Does it mean B, the joy that comes from the Lord? Or C, both? Exactly. See, I'm asking a grammatical question. Because I want to... I say both. Yeah, because it's... I think my natural tendency is to just look at it as the joy that comes from the Lord. But it's really intriguing to me when I start to think about it as the Lord's own joy that he's saying, you want some? And he dips down a ladle and he pours some on me too. And it's, and it's the who he is. It's just who he is. You're saying it's C. It's both. It's both. So the joy of the Lord. He also is my friend and joy We do know this, right? Like if I don't have $500 and you ask me for $500, I can't give you $500. But if you ask me for $500 and I have $1,000, I can totally give you $500. Because I can't give you what I don't have. So if we are receiving joy from him, he has it to give. Ah, yeah, that's the next question. Question six, true or false, God is the most joyful person of all. Now, let's just get that in our head. <laughs> he has to be because he made belly buttons. I, I wonder. I wonder about this. Like, do we really think God is the most joyful person who exists? The most joyful person in the universe? It's, it's not the only thing that's true, right? Duh. Right. But we've acted like it. Like, like it's. I think. Like, I think we have acted like it's not true. I read the book, and the Old Testament doesn't feel like he has much of a sense of humor. New Testament, he's, you know, he's got some stuff that I'm like, that's pretty funny. Like the angel being like, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? I'm like, uh, dude just flew up and disappeared behind a cloud. I think I'm owed five minutes of like, what? I mean, I stare at a balloon longer than it's there. Where'd it go? You're, gonna, you're not going to give me. I think that's hilarious. Or Jesus saying, um, that hypocrite, when we act hypocritical, we are like a man who's got a big two-by-four poked out of our head, trying to help people who have a little splinter in their head, and we're like whacking them, and that's hilarious. I mean, the donkey talking is pretty funny. There are some funny things, but I'm saying, in general, my stereotypical impression is that God's fairly temperamental in the Old Testament and a little cranky. But that in the... <laughs> See, it's not true. It's not true. It's not, it's not good. Um, Where's my water? <laughs> so true or false, God is the most joyful person of all. I hear us saying true, but I want us to sit a, w- a little bit with that idea. Uh, whoever, whoever you think of, somewhere in here I have a question for you to think of a really joyful person, but whoever you think of as the most joyful person you know, God is more. Number seven, question seven, how do we receive? That's a carefully selected word, receive, not produce, how do we receive the joy of the Lord? You have to take that joy that's given. So there is an element of, of participation, and you have to be willing to receive it yep. and open to receive it. I remember being at a meeting where, where Alan Hawkins walked in late. I think he'd been getting prayed for in a different room, and he just looked drunk. And he tried really hard to be civil 
because Randy was teaching and all of us were sitting quietly in an afternoon session and nobody was making a peep. So he just kind of walked in with a dumb grin on his face. And I looked at him too long and I started chuckling. And, and I think he was chuckling. He laughing during prayer. Yeah. And this, the joy, the, like a, a joy started to bubble up, in my, in, up here and come up into my throat. But I was like, man, if I break out in full-on laughter in the middle of a preaching, afternoon preaching session where Randy's teaching very meticulously through a thing and he's got all those things, I'm going to be really disruptive. And so I shut it down, and the dude next to me is like, what are you doing? You're going to quench the Spirit. And I was like, I'm being disruptive. And he said, you're going to quench the Spirit. I'm telling you right now. He, he was getting, like, mad at me because he had the opposite. Like, he, he didn't have a... Uh, a religious need for order like I did. He had maybe the opposite, almost a legalistic need for chaos. You know what I mean? Like, like you're sinning if you're not you know, rolling on the floor. What's wrong with you? And uh, <laughs> I shut it down. And Stan, I felt my whole spirit go completely flat. And I, I didn't feel condemned. I didn't feel convicted. I felt intrigued like I had just run a science experiment. Because I, because I did it in ignorance. I didn't know better. But the evidence, the data was immediate, and the tactile feedback was like, ah, I just quenched the spirit a little bit right here in this moment. I didn't even know that was a thing. And now that passage of Scripture is so clear to me. It's so obvious and clear to me that it's a different thing to quench the spirit than to grieve the spirit. Totally different things. Grieving the spirit is like you're sinning against the Lord. That's different. You're bringing like, deep sadness to God's heart with total rebellious living according to the flesh. Quenching the spirit is he's trying to lead you to a specific thing and you're intentionally resisting that leadership. It's not an issue of like rebelling against the Lord. It's just an issue of, of uh, I don't even know what the right word is. It's more of an, an issue. It's, it's, it's it, willful ignorance as opposed to willful rebellion. I, I don't even mean to get off on that. But yeah, you have to, cooperating with the Holy Spirit is one way to receive joy. And, and like, if you're ashamed of, of, of expressing emotion, if you feel that it's undignified to cry in front of people or, or, or have joy in front of people, because all the strong emotions are expressive and they make you, they make the inside part of you visible outside of you, which makes them terrifying to certain personality types. Like, terrifying. Who's tracking with what I'm saying? They make the inside outside. And so, like, I think one of, the, one of the things that, to me, feels necessary to receive the joy of the Lord is a certain measure of either reckless abandon to not care what anyone thinks, <laughs> which, yeah, God's presence is, a, is like a social lubricant, much like alcohol is, which I think is one of the, the similarities of do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, both of those are social lubricants, if you know what I mean. Like, they remove inhibitions. When I'm filled with the Spirit of God, like, I'll just hug strangers and tell them they're beautiful. You know what I mean? I came home from church one day, walking home from church. There's a dude on his front porch. Yo, what you doing? You ain't been to church today, man. God loves you. Where you doing? Get back in church, bro. Like, I don't even know this guy from Adam. Who is that? Because that's not Tim. Tim's like, oh, no, strangers, run away. <laughs> but I think there needs to be, there, like... There's, there's a willingness, if, if you're like, I want to receive joy, but I'm going to clamp it down so it doesn't get out and make me embarrassed, that's a, that's a contradiction. That's a contradiction. There has to be some kind of willingness to allow joy to find expression 
as a prerequisite. Yeah. And I think silliness is often the, the thing. So if you're, if you're the kind of person who thinks, associates God with, it, so, okay, maybe this is the right way to put it. If we associate deep reverence, I mean, I want as much reverence as I possibly have, but if you associate deep reverence with never being silly, I mean, like, anyone who's good with children knows that being silly and happy and funny is what kids are all about. Having fun, laughing, having joy is what kids are all about. And then we grow up and being dignified and respectable and hardworking and paying, and paying our way in life and proving that we are the people who are worthy of respect become like displaces seeking joy, um, like, which is lame. I think we need to get back to the place where we, un, with no shame, are seeking joy. Because seeking joy is our duty in God, actually. And I'm and, and like, well, but earlier you said don't seek joy. No, you can't just like produce it is what I'm really saying. But, but like, you, we don't love God. How do I say it the right way? Does it glorify the Lord to be grumpily serving him? <laughs> or does it glorify the Lord that serving him is such a joy and such a delight because knowing him is so, it gives us so much pleasure to know him. Like, which one of those glorifies God? You know? But, but, but then you can see the people, yeah, but, but you be careful because then you're just seeking your own joy, which means you're seeking your, it's, it's self-centered. Self is on the throne. And I'm like, but if self's on the throne, it actually erodes the joy. The more selfish you are in it, the less joy there is in it. So the only real way to seek your own joy is to seek Jesus' will and your joy in doing his will. So you can still get around that dumb objection. I love what yeah. I do, and so it's just... It's such a foreign it's concept. Better. It's a foreign concept, the idea that he actually put desires in Carolyn Biggs that are going to both make you happy and, well, even there's three things they're going to do. They're going to make you happy, they're going to glorify him, and they're going to help people all at the same time. It's too Ready for the next one? 1 Thessalonians 5.16. This one was hilarious. The first time I really remember this verse. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Be joyful always. The first time I really had that verse stick in me was when I was at a friend's house and their kid was whining about something. And the dad angrily snapped and pointed a finger and said, at least this is how I remember it, be joyful always. He grumpily commanded his whining kid to be joyful always. And I thought, well, there, that solved everything. That just fixed it. Now, now everyone's joyful. Not. Um, <laughs> so, okay, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says to be joyful always. Now, in order to live that out, to be joyful always, should we A, feel joyful always, is that the point of the verse? Are we, is he commanding us to feel joyful always? Or B, is he, is he commanding us to act joyful always, regardless of how we feel? Or something else that we should look at the verse in its context to discern? <laughs> says, always be joyful. Then the next verse says, never stop praying and be thankful in all circumstances, 
For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Be joyful always, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances. So is it possible that what he's saying is that one way to cultivate joy is to never stop praying and to constantly give God thanks for in the midst of all the hard things you're going through. You're not thanking God for all the hard things you're going through. You're thanking God in the midst of all the hard things you're going through and you never stop praying. It doesn't say feel joyful always. It says be joyful always. And I think there's a big difference. God, I thank you that. Yep. Lots of God, I thank you that's. Yeah. I was just thinking of Paul saying that we are always rejoicing. We're always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are complex. We are capable about being really sad about the state of the world, kind of mad about something that just happened, and yet at deep peace with God and full of hope because of the resurrection of Jesus, all in the same moment. At least, at least all within the same five-minute period. You know, and depending on what we are talking about in the moment, emotion will swell up. Very, very different emotion when we change the topic because we're capable of holding lots of, of emotional states within us at the same time. And so be joyful always doesn't mean never cry. You can be joyful at a funeral. On the same day you're weeping, you can also be rejoicing that he's in heaven. She's in heaven. Deeply sorrowful and yet joyful. Sorrowful they're not with us, but joyful they're with Jesus. At the same time, on the same day, in the same five-minute period. You know, and I, I find that really helpful because then I don't have to feel bad when he says be joyful always that I don't just perpetually experience nothing but a, a positive, emotional, ecstatic happiness, you know. But I can, no matter what I'm going through, choose to access that thing I am very happy about that isn't going to be stolen from me because moths can't, can't eat it away. Thieves can't break in and steal it. And it's my kingdom relationship. It's everything Jesus brought me. Nothing can touch it. Nothing can. So it's always true. It never goes out of style. It never goes out of season. And it's always available for me. And I can step into it. I can examine it. I can hold it in my hands. I can look at the jewels I can know the name he's given me, the white stone he's given me that only he and I know. I can, I can access my forgiveness at will. I can, I can bring it to mind at will. And, and this is one that I actually really believe. I can choose to put myself in a position for the Holy Spirit to come and flood me at will, whenever I so choose. Not because it's under my control, but because he's so faithful and consistent to draw near to me when I draw near to him. And then I can rejoice in him, and I can thank him, and I can praise him, and I can pray to him. I can, I can do all that stuff, and then I can find joy in him in the midst of everything else. So when we go after joy, we should expect circumstances and feelings to put us in a position where we actually have to learn to think differently to cultivate joy. And sometimes the circumstances make you grab for the joy because the circumstances are bad. <sighs> Ain't that the truth? Sometimes you, sometimes you ain't even trying to thrive. You're trying to survive, but you learn some skills that help you actually thrive. Now, question nine, what does it mean to rejoice? 
Well, I'll just read the whole thing. And then what would it mean to rejoice in the Lord always? Paul says that how many times in Philippians? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. It's not a burden for me to keep repeating myself, and it's a safeguard to you. So then he just says it again a couple more times. Rejoice. So to rejoice in the Lord, to, to rejoice is to celebrate. And to rejoice in the Lord is to celebrate what? In what the Lord is doing, has done, who he is, whatever it is. To, to rejoice in the Lord is to celebrate the Lord. Question 10, if you were a demon, that's always a fun way to start a question. <laughs> if you were a demon, what would your go-to strategy be to steal Christian's joy? I love this question. Oh, so it's tailor-made. So, okay, so Kate, Kate's demon, demonic strategy <laughs> would be to carefully watch each person and figure out what, what brings them happiness and joy and somehow sever that connection. All right, so what, what would your demon strategy be? To cut Kate's, uh, is it too personal if I ask it like that? Oh, it would probably mess with Pete. Mm. Too much joy. Mess with Pete? Take away Kate's joy. Kick them when they're down. <laughs> Hit him where it hurts. Below the belt. I was laying on the bed and Annie was all over me the other night. I developed a defensive posture, shall we say. And Carrie's like, you're kind of protecting the family jewels there, aren't you? I said, actually, I'm currently in pain from the previous exhibition. So if you were a demon, you would tailor make your strategy to figure out what this believer, what brings this believer joy, and I'd attack that thing. And for you, it's Pete. That's irritating. Like flies, like gnats. Yep, yep, yep. They don't hurt you, but they just make yep. you crazy. Yep. They get in your eyes and stuff. It's amazing to me how people get so ticked off at slow drivers. I'm like, your life must be amazing because that's the worst thing, that, that's the thing that ticks you off. I got so many things that tick me off more than that. Like the people who don't take the trash out. Instead, they just put things on top of a pile on top of the trash till that then falls off and it's on the ground. So whoever does take out the trash is tearing the bag and then they have to come back in and fill the next bag up halfway. See what I'm saying? That's way worse than driving slow in front of me, but also don't drive slow in front of me. I think if I were a demon... My go-to strategy would be to get a Christian to think about wrongs done to them an awful lot. Let's focus on what your dad didn't do for you. Let's focus on what your spouse didn't do for you. Let's focus on the disrespectful comment that somebody made. Let's focus on who hurt you. Let's focus on who betrayed you, who abandoned you, who doesn't like you. Let's get you thinking about how, you, how much you do for others and how others don't do for you back. Let's get you thinking like that. Let's, start, let's just remind you how much you've sacrificed and how little others are willing to sacrifice for you. Who did something for you? Huh? Who was there for you in the clutch? Nobody. Things are better on the other side. Johnny Cash has a hilarious song called Nobody. Well, one time when things was looking bright, I started whittling on a stick one night. And who said, hey, man, that's dynamite? Nobody. And every verse is just like that. Just him talking about stuff. And then he has a, a, a chorus that says, I ain't never done nothing for nobody. And I ain't going to do nothing for nobody no time till somebody does something for, for me. Like, 
Hilarious. It's a whole self-pity, poor me, and I quit. You know you've encountered this attitude, and there have been days when you just were a huge, grumpy, party-pooping, self-centered, entitled victim. If you were a demon, what would be your go-to strategy? Kate's would be attack people that they love. You know, it's interesting. Some people, you hurt them directly, and they can put up with it indefinitely, and they don't get offended. But you hurt people they love, and they get extremely offended on behalf of others. That's fascinating, which shows you that it's really important not to take up offense on behalf of others, not just not on your own behalf. And my strategy would be tell the Christian to pity themselves a great deal and to tell themselves a story. Tell them a story about how their life is bad and they should feel bad. (laughs) Your life's amazing, dude. (laughs) Question 11 if, it's kind of the opposite. If you were someone's spiritual coach, what would your go-to strategy be to help them cultivate joy? Carolyn Biggs comes to you, Stan, and says, help me cultivate joy. Go. And then you give her some piece of advice, and then you say, you owe me $120. <laughs> if you were my spiritual coach. See, see, here's the thing. is it's, it's, it's tangible, isn't it? It depends who's sitting in front of you. If you were my coach, what would you tell me, Kate? Help me. Take a vacation. Ooh. Depends on the issues they're having, what you're going to tell them, doesn't it? But if you back way up, what's your go-to strategy? Foster the right relationships. If they fo- so your advice would be, right. you've got to get the right people in your life. If you want to get a companion, a fool suffers of harm. Mm-hmm. You walk with the wise, you get wise. Yeah, that's good one. Mine would be talk much to God. And if you're saying it to me and you ain't said it yet to him, I'm going to tell you. Have you talked to God about that? My one, my one boss, he would say something and he'd go, I know, I know. Did you talk to God about it yet? <laughs> and I'd say, funny you should say that because I was about to ask that. And he's like, oh. <laughs> Makes a difference. Twelve. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones drew a strong connection between joy and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he drew such a strong connection that he said that it is the baptism of the Spirit that brings... A regular Christian believes the gospel, and they're in. But then, when they get baptized in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit, what happens is they know they're in. They're not just forgiven. They know they're forgiven. They're not just loved. They know they're loved. So the baptism of the Spirit, he calls it the the immersing overflow of assurance of the things we actually have in the gospel. And, and he said that this, Peter talks about, um, you, in 1 Peter 1, or is it 2 Peter 1? You are experiencing the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, and you are experiencing a glorious and inexpressible joy. Okay, here's, here's the part I referred to earlier about these words. Agape, which is the word for love, and kara, which is the word for joy, were actually just secular words. In fact, the word agape was used of a dude who was devoting himself to a pagan god and walked out into the ocean and killed himself that way, just with such devotion to, like, whichever one was the ocean one. I can't remember. Mike Gabriel would know all the names of everything. So this kind of radical agape, radical devotion totally sold out selfless, self-sacrificing love 
was not a distinctively Christian word until it became a distinctively Christian word after Christianity sort of took off. Before that, it was a word used, you know, your Bible wasn't written in special language. It was written in Koine, Greek. It was not written in sacred language. It was written in street language. And, so, and the same for joy. These were secular words when the apostles first used them, but now over the 2,000 years of us using these words uh, in sacred ways, we've come to associate them as exclusively sacred words. And I think that can be a little harmful because then I think it's easy for us to become scandalized when we see examples of sacrificial love outside of Christianity and when we see examples of optimistic, positive, joyful people outside of Christianity. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but that's just an observation that I wanted to make. Pretty soon on, on a Wednesday night, I want to I do a talk called He Shines in All That's Fair, where I talk about uh, the challenge of dealing with all the goodness and beauty outside of Christianity and how I give all glory and credit to God for all the goodness and truth and beauty I find everywhere. 14, joy is an emotional state, but rejoicing is an action. A, how can God command feelings? We already asked that, right? Be joyful always. How can he command feelings? And B, what's the relationship between joy and rejoicing? Or maybe just restating the question, C, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do we rejoice because we're joyful or, or, or do we have joy because we rejoice? Or sometimes one and sometimes the other. Or, and maybe if I say it this way, if I tell Gabriel to warm the house up and he then starts to rub his hands together vigorously, I go, bro... What I meant was, light the pellet stove. Can he just produce the, ho the house being warm right now by a sheer act of will? The answer I wanted was no, but I'll take it, because that's true. But God can command feelings because we, we can choose to do the things that will put us in that emotional state. Joy does lead to rejoicing, but rejoicing does lead to joy. And hopefully that cycle will be a positive cycle that forms habits in us so that be joyful always becomes attainable for us. 15, who is someone that you know personally who exudes joy? That you know personally? Carl Chubb. When he's rubbing his belly, he's joyful. I'll tell you that much right now. If he gets that belly rub going, he's like a genie. He's rubbing that lamp. <laughs> he's about to get something going. I like that one. That's a good one. My friend Carmel. She doesn't laugh. She like cackles. She bubbles. <laughs> Hang around. When you're used to hanging around Thanksgiving and you get around someone who is perpetually complaining, you go, well, that's weird. We need to retrain you how to connect with people because you seem to think the only way to connect is on trouble and problems. Is the devil ever joyful? With the devil's laughing and... Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? 
Is that the one with the, like the OK Corral shootout? Mo yeah, yeah. Like the Western. Da, 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 that one, yeah. I can hear the, the laughter. But and yet, none of us, I don't think, would say the devil's a joyful person. And God's totally a joyful person. The most joyful person. And yet Jesus is called a man of sorrows. Uh, back to the complexity, right? So here's something I wrote. I think it's very possible for non-Christians to be joyful about blessings and even for evil people to rejoice in doing evil. Of course, that doesn't make it right. It puts us to shame when non-Christians, because really I'm, I'm asking about the devil, but I'm not. I'm asking about the other kingdom. Is there joy outside of the, the kingdom of God? And, I, and here's where I would say the definition where we were defining joy at the beginning of, I think it's, it's helpful for us to distinguish between gospel joy and sort of normal joy. It puts us to shame when non-Christians are more joyful about stuff that's less beautiful, less amazing than our God. And we actually have the ultimate reason to be joyful. It puts us to shame when non-Christians are more joyful than us, is what I'm saying. What makes Christian joy unique and distinctive, it is that it is joy we take in God. We don't just rejoice. We rejoice in the Lord. The kind of joy that we are meant to cultivate is explicitly gospel-centered and spiritually rooted in Christ. In other words, it's less about us working on ourselves to become a more joyful person, and it's more about us developing our connection to the Lord and allowing His truth to renew our mind to who He is. Right? It's not a self-project we're on. It's a relationship we're cultivating. We're almost done. Since the kingdom of God consists of righteousness, this is Romans 14, 17, since the kingdom of God consists of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, why do people often think of godliness as dreary, boring, joyless, and dutiful? Because they see us. <laughs> because they see us. Oh, dang it. She cut off all my, she, she cut off all my, what are they thinking? Nope, it's you. <laughs> Grumpy Christians. Yeah, there's no way to be a good witness right. with a car. Right. Like, Either you're going too fast or too slow. Or, yep. Yep. Yeah. I think you're right. I think I think we have less joy than we should, and that that helps. But I also think because they don't understand the gospel, and so they think that if they were to commit to belonging to God, they would be committing to a God who's not happy and to a lifestyle that's not enjoyable, that it would be self-denial with no payoff. We, we believe in self-denial for a reason, not self-denial. In other words, we believe in short-term pain, long-term gain. We believe in put my selfish things to death so that I can fulfill the joy of my calling and have deeper fulfillment than if I had done the quick thing that was going to make me happy on Tuesday. Whereas they, I think what they think we believe is 
God's really mad. He's in a bad mood. He doesn't like you, and he will kill you if you don't keep these arbitrary rules that he decided he would tell you you have to do, even though they don't make sense. But if you disobey him and disrespect him, he is going to kill you and put you in hell forever, even though his ideas are dumb. And it's not fair. And you did nothing to deserve this thing. <laughs> Love God. Why would I, I want to get away from God? It would be amazing if, if, the, if the Christian Bible, if the whole thing, that's what I thought at 18 years old. You know, I wish this Bible, I just want to get away, free. Hell's at the end and all these terrible rules I can't possibly keep are here for now. And being a Christian means I, I can't, yeah, you can't, you can't have a romance with, a, with an incredible woman that would actually turn you on and thrill you in the depth of every bit of you. You, you have to, it's going to be some Ned Flandery thing and. Sex is dirty, save it for someone you love, and like you can't cuss. Whatever you do, don't make rock and roll. Anything fun, the answer is no. And anything that sucks, the answer is yes. It's like, it's like moral vegetables. All vegetables, no meat, no fat, no steaks, no burgers, no hot dogs, nothing fun, no cookies. And then I actually got saved, and it was like totally wrong. There was self-denial. There, was, there were hard things. There is telling me no. There is... Don't lust, don't anger, forgive, your, forgive those who hurt you. Like, there are a lot of things that were hard and still are hard. But they're for my sake, and I get that now. Like, they're to pr- cultivate joy, they're to protect thriving, and I get that now. I think, I think that's my answer, is people don't understand how good God is, and they don't understand the heart behind the commands is always for your sake and for your thriving you know, that God's never going to trap you in some dumb, arbitrary thing that makes no sense and sucks life away from you. No good thing does he withhold from them whose walk is blameless. Like, he's literally for you. And like, essentially, your testimony tonight was knowing him and knowing my identity in him has ushered me into this place that it's, it's a new place in which I live, right? Like Romans 5. Um, this grace in which I stand, you like live in an island called grace where every step you take is always in a place called grace. And you, the root word for joy, kara, that's really tiny. I tried to fit everything in one page. The root word for joy is kara, and that's connected with the word for gift, which is charisma. And the word grace is, kare, is, is charis, uh, missing an S. And gratitude or giving thanks is eucharistē. These are all the same root word. Joy, gift, grace, 